If you, if you have been with us for these several messages thus far from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, you know that I have been repeatedly mentioning the phrase, which as a phrase actually makes up the very sermon title for this series, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. This is, of course, a phrase used in God's holy word, starting, of course, in the Old Testament prophets, a number of their prophecies I read to you last time, if you remember, and, of course, moving on additionally, this concept of the day of the Lord comes even in bold relief in the New Testament, uh, where that phrase, that concept, the truth behind it is very, very prominent in the New Testament epistles, for instance, as we are currently studying, as an example, in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. They have occupied us for many days now. And when you turn to the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, you find a great deal more of the details of what the day of the Lord will look like. And uh, because we want to see a little bit more of that, and maybe as a little bit of a teaser, so that you will remain with us as we continue through even the second book of Paul to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, turn in your Bibles there to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 for a great deal of information about this day of the Lord, about the day of our Lord's coming, and particularly the latter half of that where there is great wrath. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Here's the day of the Lord. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord, do you see that phrase there? That the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God, that's God with a small g, of course, or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, capital G, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, 
and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, if that doesn't tease you to stay with us for more days regarding the day of the Lord, I don't know what could. And perhaps if that doesn't do it for us, look back at chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, beginning in verse 5. You not only have this instance of the coming of the Lord referred to in chapter 2 as the day of the Lord, but you also have details here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 12, about the judgment of this day of the Lord. Verse 5 of chapter 1, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day, to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that at the name of our Lord Jesus, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our, our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, if you're like me, when you hear of these terrible, ghastly, horrible details of the coming of the day of the Lord, you may be, as these Thessalonian believers certainly inclined to think about the terror and the ferocity of these last day's events. I mean, they just send shudders down anyone's spine. And the Thessalonians, like these precious believers there in Thessalonica, they're undoubtedly, because of the emphasis that Paul puts not only in 2 Thessalonians that we just read, but, of course, in 1 Thessalonians that we're reading now and studying verse by verse about this terror, this terror of the Lord. And the question that they are undoubtedly asking, probably through Timothy, who's come to visit them because Paul's been thwarted in being able to come visit them. Timothy has been able to come see them. He's heard from them. And perhaps they're asking another question. You remember in 
chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, they're asking this question about their deceased believing loved ones. Are they going to miss out on the coming of the Lord Jesus? Are are they going to be disadvantaged in some way? And Paul spins chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, to give them the answer to that question. And the answer is a resounding no. They're not going to be missing out on anything. They're not going to be disadvantaged in any way. In fact, I tell you, those who have died in Christ shall rise first. You don't have any reason to be beleaguered and worried and terrified that somehow your believing deceased loved ones in Christ are going to be disadvantaged or miss out in the coming of the Lord in any way. And now in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, beginning in verse 1 there, all the way to verse 11, it seems as though maybe Timothy has heard from the Thessalonians themselves, and now they're asking a second and most important question. And what might that question be? Well, it might be something like this. When Paul has taught us before, and Timothy, with you being here, please ask Paul to give us a word again about these last day's events, and particularly this sudden destruction of the day of the Lord. Are we going to be caught up in such a thing? Are we going to have to endure such a thing? Is this going to come upon us, this ferocious day of the Lord? If our deceased loved ones in Christ are going to rise first, and then we after them to be translated uh, into having glorified bodies to be forever with the Lord, that's wonderful. Praise God. Uh, We're comforted by that. But will we have to go through all of this first? Well, Paul answers that question with a definite no. And he emphasizes and underscores and highlights that definite no, both in the answer to the first question in chapter 4 and now to the second question in chapter 5 by certainly ending both of these sections by saying, if I could conflate the two endings, something like this, encourage one another and build one another up with these words. You see, we were supposed to go through this massive, destructive, terrible day of the Lord and the judgment that is coming upon the earth. I can't see how that would be encouraging. So, what's going on? Are the Thessalonians encouraged, built up? Are there questions being answered? I say again with a resounding yes, they are. And just like they are in the first century, you ought to be in the 21st. And in order for us to do that this morning, to be encouraged, to be built up, to be edified, I want you to see three very important principles here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 4 through verse 11. Are you ready? This is so encouraging. I couldn't wait to get here this morning. 
This is so encouraging. And the three principles, the the commands even, that you and I are to live out when we see the day of the Lord coming near are astounding principles, astounding truth. And those principles are that we not say we're not going to be here so it doesn't really matter. That's not where he's going. That's not what he's saying. And there might be a sense in your mind and mine that if we're going to be delivered from this terrible, destructive, ferocious day of the Lord, then we don't care one whit about what's coming after we're raptured. We we don't care one whit what's coming if we die in Christ. We'll be rising first, and then those who are raptured will be translated into glorified bodies and will be forever with the Lord. And Paul, that's what you said. So living in the here and now is not a problem for us at all. Well, of course they're not saying that. Because in their here and now, in that first century context, in the very place, Thessalonica itself, they were undergoing some stout persecution, some real suffering. You can see that in the thread as you read through both First and Second Thessalonians. This is, this is very, very important, my friends, because what you're seeing are Thessalonians who are not at all resting on their laurels. Not at all. And Paul would never ask them to do that. He would never command them to do that. He would never say something like this, well, look, you're going to be delivered from this great, terrible day of the wrath of God. So just sit back, relax, and take it easy, my friends. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, just the opposite. Here's principle number one. Principle number one. Do you see it in your your outline there if you have your Lord's Day bulletin? Christians must always, and I emphasize that, must always strive to be what? Awake. Awake. I wanted to make these three principles as memorable and as easy for all of us to know and internalize in our hearts. And the first one and the other two like it are easy. Be awake. Be awake. Be around and awake. Notice what Paul says here in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. He says, but you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. What is he talking about here? Well, of course, we've got to go back up to verse 1 and 2 and 3, and we've got to understand in the context what Paul begins to say here in verse 4. So look back at verse 1. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, and that may actually be a phrase in which 
we posit the idea that Timothy has heard directly from the Thessalonians and they're asking these questions about the great and terrible day of the Lord and they ask that first one in chapter 4 right at the end and they're now asking the second question right at the beginning here in chapter 5. That's why this unit all hangs together with the answers to those two predominant questions. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. But of course, he turns around and writes to them. Which means, I want to remind you again. We talked about that at great length. And then verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Uses that metaphor of a thief who doesn't announce his entrance. He comes when you don't expect him. Verse 3, There's another metaphor. While people are saying there is peace and security or peace and safety. You know, even just like the Old Testament uh, false prophets who were saying there's peace, peace. But there is no peace. And here he says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. That's that second metaphor. And then here's the third. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Uh, she doesn't know when she's going to begin labor. It comes on unawares. So whether you're talking about a thief who doesn't announce his entrance as he's robbing the place, or those who falsely, like false teachers, false prophets, say, no, 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 everything's good. There's all peace and safety and security. Paul says, no, no, it's just like a pregnant woman who does not know when her labor pains will begin. I tell you, those three metaphors are showing us that sudden destruction will come. And they will not escape. So... No wonder the Thessalonians say, okay, that's them, but what about us? What about us? Paul says, let me, let me start here in verse 4 to give you a contrast. Yes, it's true, that's them. This is us. And then he starts to contrast the two groupings of people. And by the way, one of the great traits one of the great hermeneutical principles, hermeneutics just meaning the science and art of interpreting the Bible, one of the great principles of interpretation is finding out who is being referred to by the pronouns. You got it? Right, the pronouns, right? Especially collective pronouns, plural pronouns. And and they're all over the place here in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. I'll show you. Uh, Notice this. He says in verse 5, chapter 1, now concerning, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, and of course, brothers is a reference to whom? The brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, the believing brothers and sisters. You, who's the you? You, brothers and sisters. I'm telling you as Christians, as professing believers, you have no need to have anything written to you. I'm talking to you. For you yourselves, verse 2, are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. But then notice the change in the pronouns, verse 3, while people. You see the change there? Now, it's so easy for us when we're reading our Bible. You know, you got your reading plan and you're reading through your Bible. Or perhaps you've stopped and instead of the reading plan, you're actually saying, you know, I want to get down into this text, whatever text you're reading. 
And so maybe you've got your pen there or your highlighter. Or maybe you're, you're on your smartphone or your tablet or your computer and uh, you can do things like uh, highlighting by just uh, putting your cursor over a particular word, right? And shading it and then putting bold or uh, italicize the word or, or underline it. Whatever your means of, of Bible study, boy, when you get to this phrase right here in verse 3, while people are saying, it should jump right out at you, right? People. Who's people? Ask, ask these diagnostic questions. Who's people? Who's the people there? While people. That's humanity, right? And, and I would even say contextually, this is not just humanity here. This is unbelieving humanity. While people, the unbelieving people, not the you of verses 1 and 2, but the people of verse 3. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon whom? Them. You see, the, you see the difference? Not you, not brothers. You're fully aware. You know about the day of the Lord. I've already taught you. But now I'm talking about them, the unbelieving world, the people, uh, the people around you, Thessalonians, your, your unsaved neighbors and friends. Uh, so this is why this is a somber warning. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. And the end of verse 3, and they will not escape. See the people, the them, the they. And then verse 4, but you. You see, it goes right back to the you. That's the you of believers, believing you. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Do you see the contrast? You're talking about the them, the people, the they, and now you're talking about the you, the brothers. We, we want to encourage you. How does he do so? Verse 4, but you are not in darkness. They are, but you're not. Your brothers and sisters, they are not a part of our spiritual family. That, that day will surprise them like a thief, but not you. Verse 5, for you are all children of light. That's not the whole world. That's not the whole of humanity. You, you believing persons, you in Thessalonica, you who are saved, you who are believers, you who are Christians, you are all children of light. That means everybody who's legitimately and genuinely a child of God is a child of light. And then he adds another beautiful metaphor, children of the day. We're day people. Righteous people, believing people, Christians, saints. We're day people. What does that mean? That means you and I, with day being yet another metaphor, we're of the day. That is, God has opened our eyes to see the light of the saving day. You see? We're day people. We're light people. And then he contrasts it again in verse 5. We are not of the night or of darkness. You see, the contrast couldn't be any clearer. They're day people and night people. The light people and darkness people. And then, of course, here's the payoff. Here's the principle. Verse 6, so then let us not sleep. You know, that sounds benign here in our English text. It sounds, uh, sounds like an option. So uh, let, us, let us do something. You know, let us have lunch on Thursday, shall we? 
Sounds too benign. Sounds like almost like a take it or leave it kind of proposition. This is a principle. This is a command, my friends. This is not, hey, if you think about it, let us not sleep as others do. No, this is, this is far more powerful, far more principial than that. It's a command. It's the idea that you and I have got to be awake. You see, far from the idea of, look, the them, the they, the people, they're going to have sudden destruction. It's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come when they think there is peace, peace, but there really is no peace. They're going to say, look, it's like uh, labor pains, and since we don't know, we're going to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. No, no, you cannot be like them. You cannot sleep like them. You cannot be around the darkness like them. You, you cannot be children of the darkness like them. You've got to be children of the light. You've got to be living in the day that your eyes were shown the glorious truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ, and therefore you're people of the day. And so you've got to be awake. You know, in that culture, they didn't have, uh, they didn't have night shift uh, they didn't have uh, the graveyard shift. They worked during the day. They didn't have electricity. So what happens when nighttime falls? Well, you don't work. So it's an easy metaphor. You don't work at night. You work during the day. You work while it is day. The, the New Testament is filled with that metaphor. The idea is when you work, when you do your job, when you do your ministry, when you tell people about the gospel, uh, when you witness to the saving truth of Jesus Christ, you got to do it in the daytime. Because when night comes, nobody works. That's what the Bible teaches, what the New Testament says. What, what, a, what a truth. And Paul, he, he puts everybody, every living being in only one of two categories, darkness versus light. Children of darkness versus children of light. Night versus day. I mean, these are obvious descriptions of categories of believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians. And why do I say, by the way, in this first outline point, that Christians are always striving or needing to be so, to be awake? It's because of verse 6. Do you see it? So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep what? Awake. This is no time for indolence, my friend. It's no time for laziness. And you know, Paul will later go on in 2 Thessalonians to actually talk about those who are idle. Those who are not pulling their load. Those who are not doing their work. You say, what kind? Well, it's probably a variety of all kinds of things. But here's the bottom line. Don't be spiritually lazy. Be awake. Be awake. During the daytime, you're awake. During the nighttime, you sleep. You see the metaphor? And by the way, when Paul talks about sleep in chapter 4, just a few verses before this, he says those who have fallen asleep, chapter 4, he's referring to those believers who've physically died, but they're believers. So don't, don't mix the metaphor here. Don't, don't 
think that when he's talking about somebody who's sleeping, he's talking about the Christians who have died in Christ. That's, that's not what he's saying in chapter 5. That is what he's saying in chapter 4. But he switches that now, and he's talking about the metaphor of the day people and the night people, the sleep people and the awake people. And he's saying the sleep people and the night people are the unbelievers. The day people, the people who are part of the light, they are the believing people. So if you're a part of the daytime, if you're a believing person, if you live in light of the day and not of the night, the darkness, the evil of this world, then you've got to stay awake. You've got to stay awake. I don't know about you, but I love naps. I love naps. But it's not in the way that you might think. It's not because I'm lazy. It's not because I'm indolent. It's not because I'm not focused or driven. It's because if I can take that little cat nap, it's going to allow me to be even more productive during the day. Because I want to be more productive during the day. Because when the night comes, no day work is possible. Now, this is what he's saying, my friends. You've got to be awake. You've got to be Awake. So I ask you, are you awake? Are you doing the work of the kingdom? Are you working during the day? This is, this is what it says. You say, well, okay, I get that. I understand that. Be awake. It's fine and good. But what does he mean by it? Be awake not only to your own surroundings, but be awake, be alert, be focused, be clearly looking out for things like false teaching. Like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 when it says, now look, there are those who are purporting through a letter or a spirit or a teaching that something has come to you about the day of the Lord as though it came directly from us, the apostolic leaders of your life. Don't buy it. Well, you're going to buy it if you are dozing. You see? You're going to buy it. You're going to be so close to being tempted to believe in something that isn't true, and it may be something that isn't true which will injure you a fair bit, but there's also things that aren't true that if you're not ready and awake and alert, it's going to harm your soul in a very fatal way. So be awake. That's why he said in chapter 2, verse 1 and following, don't follow them. Don't believe their false reports. Don't read that stuff from them as though it is reported to be from us. That the day of the Lord has already come. See, he warns them. You know, if you're slow and lazy and indolent and perhaps even fearful of what you see in social media, in broadcast capacities, I'm telling you, I am just a skosh away from either liberal or even perhaps in some cases conservative media from watching that stuff at all. You know why? Because fear-mongering often results. Terror but terror of a deceptive kind. And I'm not just talking about a virus. I'm talking about politics, social constructs, leadership, 
people, ideas, ideologies, strongholds. You got to be awake, my friends. That means get your eyes off of that media and into your Bible. This is, this is what Jesus has told us. This is what Jesus has told us, my friends. You want me to show you? Look at Matthew chapter 24. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Paul, I believe, is undoubtedly borrowing his principle here of needing to be constantly awake, that is, Christians always striving to be awake, from the lips of the teaching ministry of Jesus himself, recorded by the apostles in the Gospels. Look at Matthew chapter 24. You're going to see, along with me, where Paul has borrowed his language about staying awake. Look at Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 42. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, what's the next phrase? Stay awake. Stay awake, our Lord Jesus says, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house, and notice, he uses that same metaphor about the thief, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Got to stay awake. Got to have our heads in the book. Got to be awake. Look at chapter 25. This is, this is an amazing truth. He comes right out, does Jesus, of Matthew chapter 24. And he gives a stupendous concept of the parable of the ten virgins. Chapter 25, verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. This is, of course, virgins who are on the way. That is emblematic of those who are coming to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. And five of them were what? Foolish. And five of them were, you know, they were wise because they were what? Awake. They were awake. They weren't indolent and lazy and foolish. But when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, emblematic undoubtedly of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. In other words, they were prepared. They were awake, my friends. They were prepared for the coming of the Lord. They weren't laying around, lazily thinking, it doesn't matter, we're not even going to be here. So who cares? No. The wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept, which means it could happen to all of us. Be drowsy. Go to sleep. Oh, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. That's what the Proverbs say. Ah, I'll do it manana. Tomorrow. Later, let me just, let me just uh, have the folding of my hands and the drooping of my eyes. Ah, going right into unconscious bliss. Well, what happens? Yeah, the bridegroom was delayed and they became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, at midnight there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. 
And the foolish said to the wise, foolish because they did not have the oil, foolish because they did not have a relationship with the Holy Spirit of God, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy this oil for yourselves. And while they were going to buy it, In other words, they were unprepared. The bridegroom came and those who were ready, that is those who had the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives that made them awake, even though sometimes they could get, just like the others, drowsy, but they woke up in time, they were ready, they had the right provisions. And what happened? Those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. They're with their bridegroom. And the door was what? Shut. Oh, that's a note of the sadness of judgment. The door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. I don't have a relationship with you. You didn't have the right provisions. You had no Holy Spirit oil for your lamps so as to work during the day. Lamps meaning light, light meaning day. I do not know you. And then what's Jesus' concluding warning? Watch, verse 13, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And if that's not enough, my friends, Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. But concerning that day, that day, the day of the Lord's return, the coming terrible day of the Lord, that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to what? To stay awake. He's the doorkeeper. He's the protector. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight. This is, of course, emblematic of the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming, coming in the great and terrible day of the Lord, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, we don't know if it's evening or midnight, or crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you what? Sleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. This is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I say to you all, stay awake. Stay awake. I mean, my friends, 2 Timothy chapter 4. We won't read it. But it begins in verse 3 to say, "In, in the latter days. And folks, we're in the latter days. If you ask me, I think we're in the latter days of the latter days. And 2 Timothy says, preach the word. Verse 3. For there are going to come days, in the latter days, when people will not endure sound doctrine. 
They'll want their ears tickled. We're in those days, my friends. They're here. And it also says in 2 Timothy 3.13 that in those latter days, evil men will proceed from bad to worse. Can't you see it? (laughs) It is so obvious. It's so obvious. No, No wonder, no wonder the Lord Jesus, through the pen of this great man, John, the apostle John, says in chapter 3, just after that sort of pantheon of praise for God so loved the world that he gave every, that he gave his only son that everyone or whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You say, hallelujah, I love that verse, my favorite. I've memorized it. I quote it all the time. I use that in my witnessing exploits with others. John 3, 16. Yeah, but what about verse 17? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, the one and only. And then John says, and this is the judgment. And he uses this metaphor of light and darkness. He says, the light has come into the world that is the light of the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ and people, there it is again, people, just like 1 Thessalonians 5, and those people out there, Thessalonian believers, will experience a sudden destruction in the coming terrible day of the Lord and people, John 3, 19, love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They don't like the light because in the light, your deeds are exposed. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light that is the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. Come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out or wrought in God, generated by God himself. His work of giving you light has become manifested. You're you're light people, you're day people. And if you're light people and day people, you and I stay awake. We're always at the ready. Because the time of the Lord's return could come at any moment, my friends. Any moment could come before my next sentence. And boy, wouldn't you be happy about that. And so would I. This is, this is, this is the construction of a metaphor that brings to us spiritual realities that we're no longer of the night, of the darkness. We're day people. We're of the light. And we're not finished. He not only says Christians must always strive to be awake, he says beginning in verse 8 and 9 and 10, Christians must always strive to be aware. You see, it's not enough just to be awake. You're you're not just looking around with your eyeballs completely open. You are also aware of your surroundings. You you, you have to strive always and forever 
to be aware. What does it say in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians 5? But since we, there's that, there's that plural pronoun now, we, we the day people, we the light people, we belong to the day, let us be sober. And you notice I sort of skipped over that in verse 6, right? Be awake and be sober. Well, I did that intentionally because I wanted you to be emphasized in your mind it's not only a matter of being awake, but also being aware. And twice, once in verse 6 and here in verse 8, he says, you better be sober. Sober. Let us be sober. That's that sort of benign sense of it again. Let us, as though it's a take it or leave it. No, 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 no. Here's the principle. Here's the command. Be sober. Let us be what we are. You see, this is the uh, indicative and the imperative. This is the, this is the idea. It's indicative of who light people are, day people. They are characterized by sobriety. You know what being sober means? You all know that. Paul's borrowing from the realities of what he himself saw in his world, the world of his day. And that was there were people who lived for drunkenness. They lived for it. They, they didn't live to drink. They drank to live. This was their hope, their aspiration to escape the whole world through a bottle, through drinking. By the way, I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. How many of you, by the show of hands, have ever been a part as you drive your car, a sobriety checkpoint. Ever had that? Yeah, most of you. I've had that. What is a sobriety checkpoint? Well, you're driving your car, you're minding your own business, you've come from the store, right? Or you've come from a lovely dinner. Because day people, while they're not working, can still have night time in which, though they're not working, they're still enjoying all the good gifts of God. And so you go to this wonderful dinner, and you and your wife or you and your friends, you're out to dinner and you've had a lovely dinner and you're in your car and it's nighttime and then all of a sudden you see brake lights in front of you and then there's a stoppage and you could even be just on a city street, uh, not some major thoroughfare, and you say, what's going on? There must be a wreck up front. And then you realize just as you inch forward, wait a minute, I, I see policemen, I, I see lights, uh, I don't hear sirens, but well, what is this? Oh, this must be one of those sobriety checkpoints. What's a sobriety checkpoint, especially for some of you young people? What, what's a sobriety checkpoint? They're wanting to check to see if you've been drinking. And have you been drinking to excess uh, so much so that we have to enact laws that if you hit a certain percentage, you are considered now not just drinking but drunken, and therefore you're impaired. And what do they do at the sobriety checkpoint? Well, you, you go there, and, and that officer, he's so kind. He's so kind. You notice that? And what does he have in his, his hand? A flashlight. And so he takes the flashlight, and you're rolling down the window, and he's immediately making some observation points. How sharp are they? How aware are they? And so what does he do? Likely, if he thinks that there are some potential points of concern, 
as he goes through his little mental checklist, he might even, even if you don't ask him to or assume that he could or should, he might even take such a flashlight and shine it right into your what? Your eyes. Why? Because when you're drunk, my friends, when you've been tipsy, uh, wherever that line is between drinking and drunkenness, I don't know. I don't do that, so you let me know. But when, when that's there and the light is there, what happens when someone is inebriated? Their photosensitivity is dulled. So when the light comes to those who've been drinking not at all, the light comes into your eyeballs and you go like this, you, you're shocked, oh, that light, my eyes are too sensitive, please, Mr. Officer, you're so kind, but you're becoming now immediately unkind, please take that flashlight from my eyes. And you know what he suspects? Let's let this car pass. I have no concerns. Well, what happens if you're in a car and you're behind the wheel and you are stopped at the sobriety checkpoint and this sobriety that you're supposed to be having behind the wheel is a kind of sobriety where you're now inebriated and the light comes and the photosensitivity is dull and he shines it there and you make no motion backwards at all. Why? Because your senses are dulled. You're not having all your wits about you. In fact, Paul even says in Ephesians 5, do not be drunk with wine for that is excess or dissipation, but be controlled by the Spirit. You see, Paul takes that that truth of his world, brings it into our world, and says something like this. I'm going to use a metaphor. Be sober. Have your wits Not just be awake. People can be awake and dull. Be aware of your surroundings. And if the man comes with a flashlight and you have photosensitivity, he's going to know it. And the flashlight is the very analogy of the day people, isn't it? I I don't get worried about a sobriety checkpoint. What do I have to worry in fact, I can be just as kind as the police officer is kind to me. Got no worries. Because I'm a day person, I'm awake, and I'm aware. And here's, here's what I'm aware of, my surroundings. I, I belong to the day, and I want to be sober, but I need help. I need help. Because this is a wicked world. And they're going to entice me and allure me to do and to believe and say and enact such things that even though I'm a day person, even though I'm a part of the light brigade, I still need to be so aware of my surroundings and I need help to do that. And you know what help I get, according to Paul? Three Christian virtues, faith, love, and hope. Do you see it in the text? But since we belong to the day, verse 8, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Notice, the breastplate of faith and love. Folks, we are in a war. We're in a spiritual battle of galactic proportions. And he's using the same metaphor that he uses so often about spiritual armament. This is is 
war, so I got to get my breastplate on. For what do I need a breastplate? I'm telling you, so that my vitals remain vital. I got to have my vitals. I don't just have my wits about me, my eyes in the sobriety checkpoint of life, but I also have the breastplate on of faith and love so that when those flaming darts from the evil one come my way, I say, I got my breastplate on. And what is faith? I believe faith here is faith in God. I believe that's what he means here by the breastplate of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. My faith is strong and growing ever stronger, and that's how I'm able to successfully go through the sobriety checkpoint of life. You say, well, what what is this sobriety? It means that we are well-balanced, self-controlled. That's what it means to be sober. But Paul uses it several places. Peter uses it. Peter uses it in 1 Peter three times. Be sober. Be sober-minded. That means be well-balanced. Be aware of your surroundings. And the faith of the breastplate is the faith in God. You have to have saving faith. You have to have salvation faith. And then he says, and the breastplate of faith and love. What is that? I think that's love of neighbor. Faith in God. Vertical. Love of neighbor, horizontal. And then he says this, and for a helmet, because the most vital part of you, believe it or not, is not just the breastplate that's covering the vitals there, but also your what? Your head. Your head. And you've got to have a helmet on the head so that when those fiery darts come at the head, the mortal wounding of such a person you have the helmet. What is the helmet? The helmet's the hope of salvation. Faith, love, and hope. Paul loves these Christian triads, doesn't he? Sometimes he puts them out of order and we sort of get a little wobbly. Wait a minute. I, I thought you said in 1 Corinthians 13 that it's, uh, that it's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Well, don't get on to him if he switches a few things around for the need of the moment. And that's what he's doing. He's telling the Thessalonians, it's faith and love. Oh, and by the way, you've got to have the helmet on. When the fiery darts come, the helmet, which is the hope of salvation. And you know why he does that here? Do you know why he changes that and puts that at the end for the sake of emphasis? Because the hope of salvation is this, the hope that I'll be delivered from the wrath to come. That's my hope. Because I see a lot of non-sobriety in our world. And it's nipping at my own heels. And it's there to destroy me. And I have to have the ever-increasing faith and trust and reliance in my God for salvation. And I have to have love for my neighbors to help them when they are failing and when they are persecuted and when they are suffering. And I need myself the very hope of salvation that I will be delivered as a day person, a person of the light, because when the darkness hits in the coming terrible day of the Lord, it's going to be so dark no one would ever as a believer, want to be in it. So, I want to I be delivered. And this is what he says. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10 again. For God has not destined us for wrath. Underline it. Highlight it. This is God's electing purpose. This is election, folks. For God has not, and what's that word? destined. 
That's the word for election, God's electing purpose, His sovereign purpose to destined us as believers not for wrath, but for what? The obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, my dear friends, how, how can we not love these truths? Anybody, uh, anybody interested in the terrible, ferocious day of the Lord and the day of His wrath? Yeah, boy, I could put my armor on. I'll put my breastplate on, put my helmet on. Look, I'm going to have to be awake, and I'm going to have to be aware. But Lord, if there's any way that before that terrible, awful day of wrath comes upon this earth, would you be so kind in your electing purpose to get me out of here? That's what he's saying. And you don't get out of here unless you obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Through, through the instrumentality of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who did what? This is the gospel, my friends. Who did what? Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Oh, this is, this is a memory passage. This is a, this is a memory passage. Because you've got to clutch onto that truth. And you've got to say to yourself, this world is going to hell. And I want to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for me. So that whether I am what? Awake or asleep. Now look, he's not saying awake or asleep like what he said in chapter 4. Awake or asleep for Christians is this. I either died in Christ or I'm here right now. That's what he means. Be clear what the Bible means here. And when he says, whether I'm awake, that means I'm living still in this body. And I'm a Christian who's awake, which means I'm aware, which means I need to be sober. Or if the Lord chooses fit in his providence to take me, which could also be today. And if he takes me today, his promise is fulfilled that I've been delivered from the wrath to come. And if he doesn't take me, I'm waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ so that when he comes, he will take me out so that I'm delivered from such wrath. This is like wrath with a capital W. This is the wrath of all wraths. This is... This is World War I, two, three, and add so many Roman numerals additionally to that that this is the war of all wars. Now look, I've run out of time. Does that shock you? Doesn't shock me. And we got one more principle. And it is the most encouraging of all. And that's the last verse, verse 11. You come next Lord's Day, and you'll receive that principle. It'll be one of the most encouraging sermons you've ever heard. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, please deliver us from the wrath to come. You said you would. We want to be a 
awake and aware, always and forever striving to be so. Because we're asking you for the obtaining of our full and complete glorification, our salvation and the fullest extent of that term through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. And we're like those Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We wait for God's Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Oh, Father, when Your Son the King of kings and Lord of lords comes. And He comes to see the dead in Christ rise first. And then we who are alive when He comes will be gathered together, together with Him in the air. And when that terrible seven years of tribulation occur, the onslaught of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and when it intensifies in the last part of that seven-year period, then there will be a holocaust like no other. And we pray that if anybody comes to Christ, and there will be during that time, that you would also protect them so that they also would be eternally secure. So, please allow every person who's heard this message to do an internal diagnostic examination of their own heart. Do I know Christ, the one who died? Am I part of the us, the one who died for us? The one who delivers us from the wrath to come? Am I one who will be delivered. I want to be delivered. So what do I do? I believe in Christ. I, I believe in what He did. He died on a cross. He, he gave up His life. He was resurrected from the dead. He calls now to all people everywhere to repent and believe in the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is coming again. You say, well, there seems to be no good news about it. This wrath, this ferocious, terrible day of the Lord... Well, it is good if you are found in Him. And I pray that there would be no one here who is not found squarely in the bosom of our Lord Jesus Christ who's repented and believed in this glorious good news that before that wrath comes, you can be saved. May it be so. Believe in Jesus even now as we pray in His name. Amen.